I read to you from the book of Mark, the first chapter, starting in the 16th verse. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. It was back in 1852, Matthew Arnold wrote a poem entitled, The Buried Life. Often in the world's most crowded streets, often in the densest strife, there arises an unspeakable desire after the knowledge of our buried life. A thirst to spend our fire and restless force in tracking out our true original course. A longing to inquire into the mystery of this heart, which beats so wild, so deep in us, to know whence our lives come and where they go. Little did Matthew Arnold know when he wrote that in 1852, that 150 years later, he was going to inspire four young men in Canada. They were in their 20s, Ben and Dave, Duncan and Johnny. Four young men in their 20s, good friends in Canada, who read The Buried Life. And though they were in their 20s, they were already thinking, life is passing by. Life is moving on. Are we going to spend our life chasing trivial things or are we going to chase our dreams? Are we going to do the things that really matter to us? Are we going to find the life buried within? And so they got inspired. And what they decided to do was they sat down, the four of them, and they made up a list of 100 things that they wanted to do before they died. A list of 100 things. And then they went out and they bought themselves a bus, an old bus. And they worked hard to fix up the bus. It was a purple bus. And they named it Penelope. And then these four guys started getting on this bus and they'd go for two weeks. They'd go for three weeks. They'd go for a month. They'd travel somewhere and they would start trying to do these things that they dreamed they'd do. They'd go do something and check it off the list. That's one of those hundred down we always wanted to do. But something happened as they first started. When they got started on one of their first trips... They came across a stranger, and, and this stranger was they got to talking to and told him what he wanted to do in his life, his great dream, and they decided to help him. They helped him do the thing he dreamed of doing before he died. And in the end, they felt so good, it was so much fun helping him, that they came back and they redid their whole plan. What the plan became was, we're going to go out and we're going to try to do these hundred things we dream of doing before we die. But every time we check one off our list, we will then find a stranger. And we will ask them, what are they wanting to do before they die? And we'll try to get into their life and help them check it off of their list. I'm going to let Johnny tell you the way they felt about it. I think right off the bat, we learned that helping other people, well, it was just so much more lasting than crossing off something from our list. Everyone we met was completely random. We would just ask a complete stranger what they wanted to do before they died. And 
we would then kind of enter into their lives and help them and see them cross this thing off their list. It's just far more colorful than crossing anything off our list. They started having so much fun doing that. Now, they took themselves a video camera, and they'd been videoing all along as they went. And after they'd done this for about three years, they said, we've got some good stuff here. And so they turned it into one of these reality TV shows entitled The Buried Life. The only interesting thing is you have to go on to MTV to see it. That's where it shows is there on MTV. But it's been a huge success. Four boys making sure they're checking it off the list and always helping somebody check it off their list. When I was reading about them, it made me think about one of my favorite movies, The Bucket List. What a great movie. Make your list of important things to do. And one of my favorite scenes was when you have Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson in front of the pyramids. And they're in front of the pyramids and they're talking about life and Morgan Freeman is speaking to Jack and he says, you know, the Egyptians have a legend. When you die, you go before God and God is going to ask you two questions. One, have you known great joy? And two, have you brought great joy to another? really made me stop and think. Am I living a life of meaning? Am I living a life of passion? Have I known great joy? Have I brought great joy to another? Have I found the life buried within? That's why I liked our scripture lesson this night. I love that scripture lesson. It is short, but it is so important. Jesus is walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as he walks along, there he sees Peter and, and he sees Andrew and he says, come, follow me. He goes on a little farther and there he sees James and he sees John and he says, come, follow me. Now, you know, when you read the Bible, it kind of sounds like he's walking along and suddenly he sees two strangers, come, follow me. You need to know that's, that's not what's happening here. We know very much that, that these four men, Peter and Andrew and James and John, they were good Jews. They were men of faith. They wanted to live lives of significance and meaning. And so Jesus was starting his ministry. They would have heard Jesus preach. They would have sat around a campfire talking about what he was saying. They knew something of this man. They already had some ideas about him. But it was that day when he walked on the beach and he said, follow me. It would change their lives. It would give them the opportunity to find that life buried within, to live a life of meaning and significance, to know great joy, and to bring great joy to another. What Jesus did for them so many years ago is what I believe that he still does for each and every one of us. He walks into our lives to say, Follow me. Live a life of meaning and a life of passion. That's what I'm wanting us to think about tonight. I want us to stop and think about how do we go about doing that? We can look at the scripture. I think there's three important things to see. First of all, it is Jesus who walks along the beach and he says, come. He gives them an opportunity. An opportunity that will change their life. 
Understand, it is God who gives the opportunity. You know, at St. Luke's, one of the things we do is we have what we call dessert with Bob. We do it about every other month. And we do it on a Sunday afternoon, 2 to 4 o'clock. And we invite those people who've been visiting in the church to, to come back that afternoon and have dessert. I feel like it's a good way to get them back, feed them some good chocolate. And so we bring them on back down and we spend two hours. And I talk about the church and our history and our life. Staff is there. They can meet staff. But you know, I had so many people ask, if I join this church, what am I supposed to do? I thought that was a fair question. So we made up a list. Six things that if you join St. Luke's, we're going to ask you to do. And I go through that list. Number one, it says, As a disciple of Jesus Christ, I commit, first, to having a daily devotional life. Number two, I will be open to God's leadership in my life and new ideas. You see, I believe that if you and I take seriously a devotional life. Every day, taking time to read, to pray, to listen. God will speak. In those ways that you don't anticipate and expect, God comes and He will open doors. And if you are open to new ideas, if you're open to do something different and new, those opportunities come and you can lead a life of meaning and significance. You can find the buried life within it will happen. To the disciples, he said, come, follow me. To each one of us, he says, will you come and will you follow me? That's not just something he said to the disciples. You look at his ministry. Jesus did that all his ministry. To a man who was lying beside the pool in Bethsaida, 38 years waiting to get into the water, but when it had been disturbed, hadn't been in to get in first. And Jesus came along and he said, do you want to be healed? Oh, I want to, but I can't get in the water first. No, no, no. Don't give me the excuses. I ask you, do you want to be healed? Do you want new life? To a woman at the well. She'd been married seven times. She didn't have friends. She was an outcast in the community. Sitting at the well, he sat down and said, I'm going to offer you living water. Do you want a new life? To a small tax collector who was shunned by the community, he climbed up in a tree and Jesus stopped and said, Come down. If you want, I'll have dinner with you today. Do you want a new life? It is the offer to each and every one of us. I, I told the very first time I was here all about Floyd Little. What a great, great story. But you know, when I was watching that induction into the NFL Football Hall of Fame, there was another wonderful induction that day, two outstanding, and the other one was a man named Dick LeBeau. I don't know if you watched it. Dick LeBeau, if you're a football fan, you know who he is. The Steeler man right back over here, Dick LeBeau. He was being inducted into the Hall of Fame. He had played with the Detroit Lions for 14 years, and now he's been a coach in the NFL for 39 years. He is now 74 years old. He is still the defensive coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, a lot of people would be saying, Dick LeBeau, what are you doing? I mean, you're too old. You know, you're going to slow down. Ideas have changed. How can you do this? Well, he led them back to the Super Bowl this year. He's led them to another Super Bowl, 74 years old. Well, Dick LeBeau was being inducted into this NFL Football Hall of Fame. And I, I mean, he gave a speech that I thought was just outstanding. And when he came to the end of it, 
I want to read you what he had to say. He looked at it and he said, you know, life is for living, folks. Don't let a number be anything but a number. Don't let someone tell you that you're too old to do this or you're too old to do that. Stay in life. Life is a gift. Life is a joy. So don't drop out of it. If I'd have gotten out of my life's work that I was passionate about at 65 when you're supposed to retire, well, here's what I'd have missed. I'd have missed being a coach on the 2005 World Championship football team. I'd have missed out being a coach on the 2008 football team that won the Super Bowl. I'd have missed out on being a coach that's having statistically the number one defensive football in the last 35 years. And he went on and on of the things that he had experienced, and he came to the end and he said again, Life is for living, folks. Don't drop out of it. It doesn't matter how young or how old we are. I believe that the promise is that God gives you the opportunity. He walks along the shore of the sea and he says, Come, follow me. You want a life of meaning? You want a life that matters? You want to know great joy? You want to bring great joy to another? Come, follow me. Secondly, it's interesting when you talk to these four young men who went out and created this TV series, um, The Buried Life, they started asking. I saw an interview with them, and it was fascinating. They interviewed them, and they said, you guys are going out and doing what we all wish we'd have done. Made a list of the top 100 things we want to do, and you're checking them off. And now you're helping other people check it off their list. That is so very impressive. Tell us, why do you find most people don't do that? Why do you find most people aren't checking things off their list and doing the thing they've dreamed about doing? And these four guys said, very simple. Number one reason, fear. Fear of failing and the fear of what other people will think. Now, can you imagine these disciples... They've been fishermen. And along comes Jesus and he says, come, follow me. Don't you think one of the questions that went through their mind was, what are people going to say? What's my mom and dad going to say? What are my friends going to say when I leave fishing and I go follow this man? And what if we fail? What if he isn't the Messiah? What if it doesn't work out the way we hope and plan? What will they say then? Don't you think that ever went through their mind? How many things have you failed to do? How many things have you not done because you were afraid of what somebody else would think? As you've been hearing along, I have a lot of things that Marsh and I enjoy doing. We love sailing. We also love flying. I love flying. I'm a passionate private pilot. Just back in 1989 that Marsh and I decided that um, we wanted to build an airplane. Well, I really wanted to build the airplane. She was very supportive of it. We, we, we were going to stick it in our garage. We had a three-car garage, and we would lose that garage for a long time to come. The problem was it wouldn't be finished before we moved to Oklahoma. And when they pulled up the 18-wheeler to load up our house, the first thing they had to do was come and pick up a fuselage and stick it there into the back of this 18-wheeler. And then they had to stick this wing in 
and then they packed all the furniture, you know, the other stuff around, the important stuff already on that on that 18-wheeler to move up here to Oklahoma. And got the plane in 1989. They said it'd take about two years to build. It took nine. They lied. I worked hard at this thing. It took nine years to be able to get it built. The plane is a Cirrus VK-30. It is a kit plane. It's all composite. Uh, it's a pusher. The engine is midship, and the prop is on the rear. It'll carry four people. It has retractable gear, variable pitch prop. It is a, a Lycoming TIO 540 that's 350 horsepower turbocharged. It'll fly 25,000 feet high and 300 miles an hour. That's why we built the plane. I said, I'd like a plane that's bigger and goes faster, and we can't afford that. But if we build one, maybe we can get a little more of the kind of plane that we would like. So we set to work. Nine years till it finally flew. It was by then out here at Wiley Post Airport. And I was the test pilot. I will never forget that day when you get on the runway after all those years and you give it the throttle and pull back and that thing breaks ground and you wonder if it's going to fly. That, that was a big day. Marsha was scared to death standing there on the ground. I was scared to death in the airplane. It was a big day. The FAA has rules. The FAA says if you build an airplane and start to fly it, well, you have to fly for 40 hours by yourself over an unpopulated area. And once you fly 40 hours by yourself over an unpopulated area, they'll certify you as an airplane, and then you can go places. I flew my 40 hours. When I had 40.5, I said, Marsha, it's your turn. She was my first passenger in the plane, and we went up and flew. After that, we started painting the plane. It took months. I mean, again, you're doing it yourself. You're sanding and painted and painted on this airplane. And finally, we got it painted, and she designed the color scheme, and it looked beautiful. And so it was on a Friday. I decided to get out there and start flying again and kind of just get the hours, get, get back up to speed with this thing. And I went out there, and I took off, and it was a beautiful day. I'm flying out west. And I had it up to about 220 miles an hour. I'm smoking along, going west, and life was great. And then I heard a beeping in the headset. It was an alarm. It was telling me a high temperature on one of the cylinders. Now, I knew it was a false alarm. We've tried this before. I knew this. I tried fixing it. It was an intermittent problem. I had tried one and second and third. Couldn't get it fixed. I heard the alarm. Didn't scare me. I knew it was a false alarm. But I reached down to push a button to turn off the alarm. And when I did, I pushed the wrong button. The button I pushed didn't turn off the alarm. The button I pushed was to power up the hydraulic landing gear when you're on the ground. You only use it when you're on the ground to keep the hydraulic gear from collapsing when you taxi. So when I pushed that button, it powered up the hydraulic system, overrode everything else, and the landing gear started to come down. Now, I have what's called a gear down speed of 160. I was doing 220. And when that gear came down, it changed the aerodynamics and everything. And that plane pitched up. It scared me to death. I mean, I let off that button and grabbed hold of the yoke to push the plane nose back over again. And to get control of the airplane, and I was thinking, come on, you're better than that. You're not paying attention. Well, what I didn't realize, what had happened was, no, I was paying attention, but by pushing the wrong button, the gear had come out, the plane pitched up, 
220 miles an hour of power of wind started to close those doors. I let off the button and the gear came back up. It hit the doors. It began to crack all the gear inside and it jammed the two nose gear doors. Now, I didn't know that. But I now had a landing gear stuck up in the nose gear that wasn't going to come down. I was just thinking I'd made a mistake flying. I got control of the airplane and thought, come on now, you're better than that. I kind of calmed down Enjoyed flying for about another hour, just dumb, happy, and fat. <laughs> I, I just cruising all along. Life is so good until I came around to finally land. I called the tower and said, Tower, this is Niner 3, Romeo Lima, inbound for landing. And they said, uh, Roger, Romeo Lima, you're cleared to land. One seven left. I was on final. I dropped that gear. And it was a moment I will never forget the rest of my life. You think of how many days can you actually remember in your life. I remember this moment in my life. Because when I dropped that gear, I had two green lights come on. You're supposed to get three. One for each wheel when it's down and locked in place. I had two, one for each of the wings. And that was all. No nose gear. I, I stared in disbelief. I thought, that, that can't be. I, I, I pondered. I just kind of looked at that for a moment. And your, your heart skips a beat. I, I called the tower. And I said, a tower? This is a 903 Romeo Lima inbound for landing. Uh, but I'm, I'm showing a negative on my nose gear. Can I fly low by the tower and would you look for me? He said, Roger, Romeo Lima. So I kind of came in low and slow by the tower. And he said, uh, that's a negative on the nose gear, Romeo Lima. I said, Roger, sucked the gear up, gave it the throttle, pulled back, and started heading out west. The tower came back and said, uh, 903 Romeo Lima, what are your intentions? I went back and said, I have no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, it's one of those moments in life, I mean, you are seized by fear. I mean, panic. I I I'm cruising along. I've slowed it down to 160. You know, you want to get out on the side of the road and think about this, kind of stop this thing. There's no stopping. You've got to keep flying 160 miles an hour some direction and start thinking. I mean, it just scared me to death. I kept cycling the gear. I tried the emergency pump-down handle. Nothing seemed to work. I was praying, and I said, Oh, God, please give me wisdom. Oh, God, please give me strength. And by the way, oh, God, right now I'd take a miracle. I need that nose gear. Now, you know, you learn a lot about yourself when you find yourself in a moment of panic and crisis. And as I'm flying along out there, I, I went back to think, what was I thinking about in those moments? You know, Oklahoma City is the only city in America that has two airports named after two men killed in the same plane crash. <laughs> it's true <laughs> I gotta tell you wasn't thinking about that I, that's not a good thing to think about at that moment I wasn't thinking about another man who had built a Cirrus VK30 just like me and he had a landing gear problem only it was under the wing and when he came in to land in a field softly that wing dropped down and got caught and the plane began to cartwheel and came apart and he died I didn't think about that. 
I'll be honest. I'm flying up there with this airplane knowing I'm going to have to crash this thing somewhere and I am not thinking about dying. What I was thinking was, what is everybody going to say when I crash this airplane? What are people going to think when they hear that I've crashed this airplane? Because you see, I'd been hearing it for nine years. For nine years they'd been telling me, Bob, you're a preacher. You do not know how to build an airplane. This is the dumbest thing I ever heard. You are going to crash this airplane. This thing is going to kill you. I'd heard it for nine years. And now I was about to prove them right. I kept thinking, what's everybody going to say? Now, I know I'm not alone in this. I'm not the only person to feel this way. When I was down in Houston, I had a chance to get to know many of the astronauts. I got to know Dr. Barry, who was the flight surgeon for the original seven astronauts. His son was a member of our church, became chairman of the board. He, too, was a flight surgeon for NASA. They had a Christmas party, and they invited me. And that year, they also invited Alan Shepard. And I got to visit with Alan Shepard that night about the first man for American space and landing on the moon. He wanted to talk about airplanes. I wanted to talk about landing on the moon. But you know the story of Alan Shepard sitting on top of that little redstone rocket waiting to go, the first man in a suborbital flight. He sat there hour after hour, delay after delay, and he had to wait and wait. And after the whole flight was over, reporters said, when you were sitting on that redstone rocket waiting to go into space, were you praying, oh God, keep me safe? And Alan Shepard said, no. I was praying, oh God, don't let me screw this up. Greater than a fear of dying? What are other people going to think? I kept thinking, how can I crash this plane where nobody knows? <laughs> so help me, I really was. I, how can I get this thing down? No one needs to know what's happened around here. I tried everything. I finally, after about an hour, flew back around to the tower, and I just thought one more time. I said, Tower, I'm going to fly by one more time. Would you look at the nose gear? And I came by, and he said, Romeo Lima, that's negative on the nose gear. Do you want to declare an emergency? You need to know that only a pilot in command can declare an emergency. Tower can't do that. Do you want to declare an emergency? And I said, no, sir. I don't want to, but I'm going to have to. <laughs> He said, Roger, Romeo Lima, we've already made a decision. We're sending you over to Will Rogers because there they have fire trucks and ambulances and crash vehicles. Good luck. Oh, thank you very much. I get out there and circle around. That made me feel good. And he said, we'll give you vectors. We're going to bring you in. You just keep it in the center of the runway. I mean, I started heading over towards uh, Will Rogers Airport. And I mean, it was just like in the movies. I mean, all these vehicles lying down the side of the runway. Lights are a-flashing. I mean, there's fire trucks and ambulances and these crash vehicles. And I come bringing this thing in, and I'm just praying, and I touch down, and that nose comes down and just hits that pavement so hard. And for the next few hundred yards, I am literally about four feet looking down at this runway at 90 miles an hour as I'm trying to slow this airplane down and keep it on the runway. Right down the center line came to a stop, props on the back. I damaged the nose. It cost me about $100 to fix it in the end. That's it. Well, I mean, it came to a stop. 
I'm fine. The plane is fine. I jump out. Guys in these silver suits with their fire extinguishers charging the airplane. I'm going, whoa, whoa, we're okay. We're okay, man. Don't touch this thing. I'm thinking, okay, we're down. We're safe. And then I looked up. And there were three news helicopters flying overhead. <laughs> Lead story on the noon news. Pastor crashes experimental airplane and shuts down Will Rogers Airport. Phone was ringing off the wall at the church. Everybody knew. How many things do we not do because we're afraid we may fail and somebody may find out about it? You know what the disciples discovered was as they followed Jesus, they had great success and they had some big failures. And when they succeeded and did well, Jesus praised them and Jesus loved them. And when they failed and they ran away and they hid and they denied him, Jesus still loved them. And he forgave them. The one thing that never changed was his love towards them. So if you know that even if you fail, Christ is still going to love you, then why do you have to worry what anybody else is going to think? The disciples discovered Jesus wasn't asking them to be successful, he asked them to be faithful and to try. I think the promise to all of us is Christ comes. And if you're willing to open your heart and your mind, He will speak to you. He will give you opportunities. You don't have to worry what other people are going to think because God is still going to love you. That is the promise. So the third thing. The third thing is simply Jesus gave the opportunity, but the disciples had to decide to go. That's the reality of life. Come, follow me. That's all that Jesus could do. It was now up to the disciples, to Peter, Andrew, James, John. Will we go? We've been given the opportunity. Will we go? Several years back, I was asked to come give the baccalaureate sermon there at uh, Oklahoma City University. And it was going to be a very special morning, and I was anxious to go. And right before I went, the phone rang, and it was a family in our church. And it was Jim Harlow. Jim Harlow was the CEO of OG&E. He was a member of St. Luke's. He and his wife, Jane, wonderful people. Uh, Jim was 62 years old. He had been feeling a little under the weather. He had been feeling like he kind of had the flu. It went out of bad flu. Still was going to work. Just didn't feel quite in sync. And after feeling this way a week or two, he decided to get it checked out. And he went to the doctor and had him check it out. And the doctor said, you don't have flu. You have pancreatic cancer. And you have about four weeks to live. And he was calling saying, could you come by and visit with Jane and me? So I went to OCU and I stood up to talk to all these young people about your dreams. Live your life. Go live fully knowing that as soon as I got through, I was driving to Jim and Jane's house to go talk about what it means to die at 62 years old. I came in and sat down, and we talked for a couple of hours about life, death, life after death, 
we just talked. And after a couple of hours, it was time for me to go. And it was Jim who followed me out to the car. Jane stayed inside, but Jim followed out to the car, and we were talking. And as we walked out towards the car, he said, You know, Bob, my doctors and all my friends have been saying, Jim, if there's some place you've always dreamed about going, go now. you got to go now. And he was thoughtful for a moment. And then he said, But you know, when Jane and I were young and we didn't have any money, we went. And when we got older and we had money, but we didn't have time, we went. And so now when the end has come, I have nowhere I need to run. I want to live like that. I want to live with a sense of passion. I want to live with a sense of meaning. I want to know great joy and I want to bring great joy to others discover a buried life within. And that means God gives us an opportunity. Come, follow me. Don't whether where you will fail or what other people will think. It is your opportunity to seize that moment now. Come, follow me. I have one last story and I'll be through. One of my favorite stories is about a man named Larry Walters. And I love the story because Larry Walters had a love for flying, too. He loved to fly. Problem was, he didn't get to fly because he was a truck driver. He worked long hours. He was often gone. He didn't make a lot of money. Flying lessons were expensive. And so he loved flying. He just always looked at airplanes. It was his passion. He lived out in Los Angeles, California. And the good news was his home was right on the flight path inbound to Los Angeles International Airport. So whenever Larry was at home, he'd go out in his backyard and he had himself one of those aluminum lawn chairs. You remember those? I, I can remember back to those nice silver aluminum lawn chair, the nice webbing that weaves and kind of gets onto the side, you know. We all had them. Well, he had his aluminum lawn chair sitting out in his backyard and he would sit there and he'd watch these jets flying on into LAX. And he dreamed of flying and then finally one day, Larry thought, I could do something about this. And what he decided he was going to do, he was going to go out and get himself 46 helium weather balloons. And he was going to come back and tie them on to his aluminum lawn chair. <laughs> and what his hope was, was that it would be enough to be able to get him up off the ground. Maybe get him up to about 100 feet and that he hoped to kind of be able to circle on around the neighborhood for a while and just be able to fly in his aluminum lawn chair and experience life from looking up high. It was a great idea. So he went out and he got himself 46 helium weather balloons. He then went inside to make himself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and some Diet Cokes. I mean, he wanted an in-flight meal. He didn't just want peanuts on this flight. He wanted something more. He was going to be up there a little while. So he made the peanut butter and jelly. He got himself some Diet Coke, came back out, tethered that thing to the ground, put on those helium weather balloons, got all set, had himself a BB gun, and he was ready to go. He cut those tethers, and the good news was he started to rise up. It actually worked. The only bad thing was it didn't go 100 feet. 
he shot up to 11,000 feet straight into the approach corridor into Los Angeles International Airport. Before he knew it, Larry was flying in his lawn chair right up there with those 747s. Here came these jets flying into LAX and the pilots were looking out the front. Do you see a guy in a lawn chair out there? <laughs> I hadn't been drinking. No, no, no. I don't see anybody in a lawn chair out there. Can you imagine how you'd have felt back in the back of the airplane? You've made this long flight out to L.A. You're kind of looking at your little window because you're getting close. <laughs> Honey, I think I just saw a guy in a lawn chair out there. It was amazing. The pilots were radioing down. We see a guy in a lawn chair. The guy in the tower, they're looking at their little radar. They're going, we see a blip out there. Where did that thing come from? Everybody knew he was there. The good news was, Larry got out that BB gun. Bang, 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 bang. It was to shoot out the balloons. That's what he brought the BB gun for. Shoot out the balloons. And he starts shooting out the balloons. And sure enough, he starts to come down in a very controlled way. And he comes all the way down and he lands safe and sound. And when he lands, there's a lot of people there to meet him. <laughs> people from the FAA are there to greet him. Members from the National Transportation Safety Board are there to meet him. The police are there to meet him. And so is the press. They get him out of the lawn chair and they start to lead him away. And the press starts hollering out, Larry, Larry, was that exciting? Oh, yes, yes, it was. <laughs> Larry, Larry, were you afraid? Yes, I was. Larry, Larry, are you glad you did it? Yes, yes, I am. Larry, Larry, you ever going to do that again? No, I'm not going to do it again. And then when the last reporter hollered out, Larry, Larry, why did you do it? And Larry Walter stopped, and he turned around and he looked at him and said, Well, you can't just sit there forever, you know. And neither can we. Jesus said, come, follow me. Amen.